Father Schaffner's ordination and first Mass last weekend were a good prelude to the readings of today's Mass. We start with Paul and Barnabas, who are completing their first major missionary journey, having just been ordained bishops, which was a story that we heard during the week this past week on Wednesday at Mass. In each of these villages in Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, Paul and Barnabas establish a church. And they point, they point over these churches what Paul calls in Greek the presbuteros. And we translate the term here as elder, but in the New Testament, this term carries a particular meaning, which we carry over into English as the presbyter or the priest. So Paul and Barnabas are basically going around establishing parishes, each under a particular priest. And there's an important thing to note here. It's not the community which is appointing these elders to these priests. Paul and Barnabas, as apostles, as bishops, as the ones who have the authority of the church, are placing in the community a priest whom they appoint only after prayer and fasting. And so we see here the model of the early church as an association of the faithful gathered around a priest and even more gathered around a bishop. And it was in this manner, as St. Luke writes, that the door of faith was opened to the Gentiles. And of course, if you were at Father Mark's first Mass last week, he reminded us that we are those Gentiles. We are not of Jewish birth, but are of the Gentile people from other nations apart from Israel. The mission of the church is no longer restricted to a single people, to a single culture. And as such, each church became Jerusalem. It was no longer necessary to travel to the temple, the one temple, to offer fitting worship to God. The church had been given a new form of worship and a new structure, which brought the faith into all areas of the world. And St. John gives us a vision of the fulfillment of the church in the second reading from Revelation. I like to tell my students at the school that the whole Bible is essentially one long love story. Because it is. The whole Bible finishes its final chapters with a wedding. The wedding of Christ and his spouse, the church. Here shown as the new Jerusalem. St. John writes, And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. Within the new Jerusalem, within the church, God always dwells with his people. The old order has passed away, replaced, perfected by the new order of the church, the new covenant of the blood of Christ. So Paul and Barnabas' work wasn't simply to extend the faith, wasn't simply to preach the gospel, but was to usher in something entirely new. The old priestly ministry of Aaron, the brother of Moses, and of all Aaron's sons was now reformed into the presbyteros, the old Jerusalem into the new the temple into the church. And the one who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. I mentioned on Easter Sunday how one great theme of this time of year is newness. The church is giving us all new things, new holy water, new candles, new fire, even new priests. And now we are presented with the newness of the church itself, the new covenant, the new order of Christ, And to understand that new order, Christ himself in the Gospel of John gives us today a new commandment. Love one another. Now what is new about this commandment? Love was already a commandment in the law of Christ. 
He explained months before this that the greatest commandment was to love. But even before then, love was the central commandment of the law of Moses. It was Moses' last commandment to Israel before they entered the promised land. So it isn't love that's new, but the way we are to love. It's a paschal love. It's the sort of love that can be expected to flourish only within the church. Love one another as I have loved you. This is how all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Now, this is a particular sort of love. The Greek here in the text has a certain gravitas to it. It isn't a mimicked love, as if Christ is telling us that we simply have to copy what he's been doing. That's how most people understand it, right? They say that since Christ is telling us to love, and he loved the poor, therefore we love the poor as well. And of course that's true, but that's not really what Christ is saying here. He's saying that we have to love with the same depth of his love. Which, of course, in this moment of the gospel, on Holy Thursday night, will soon be demonstrated the next afternoon on Calvary. That's the sort of love we're speaking about here. It's the love that drove the martyrs to their death, not in fear, but in joy. And so to demonstrate this love, St. Thomas Aquinas gives us four points. The first is that by fulfilling the commandment to love, we cause our own spiritual life. St. Thomas writes, It is evident that by the very nature of the action, what is loved is in the one who loves. What is loved is in the one who loves. Therefore, whoever loves God possesses God in himself. For Scripture says, Whoever remains in love remains in God and God in him. It is the nature of love to transform the lover into the object loved. If we truly desire to live God's commandment to love, it has to begin with a love of God. The point here is that the Christian church is meant to express not a reflection of God's love, but God's love itself. That's why Christ can say that all will know you are his disciples if you have love for one another. The Christian can't help but to present Christ in his love. It is the love of Christ which drives him. So I'll give an example. On March 25th, 1736, that same love was shown here in our own state by a priest, Father Antony Sanat, who's a Jesuit priest who served the French military in Tupelo. And he heard that his fellow soldiers were captured by the Chickasaw Indians and were facing their death. So Father Antony gave himself up so that he could die with them. He and his 18 companions were burned alive while they chanted Psalm 51, here, near Tupelo. This is how all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. St. Thomas' second point is that Christian love leads to an observance of divine, divine commands. He writes, We see a lover do great and difficult things because of the one loved. And that is why the Lord says, Whoever loves me will keep my word. And this is true in all matters of the faith. We can't on one hand claim to love God and on the other hand put all these things in front of him. I saw someone put up in Twitter this week that you know a good mass when you leave exhausted. I could not agree more. If we truly love the Lord, we should feel it. The lover goes beyond his love, beyond his means to love, 
How many marriages, for example, would be benefited if spouses could keep their initial desire to excessively show love to one another? This is even more so the case in the faith. Where is our initial desire to love the Lord? Two weeks ago, I was at my niece's first communion, and I was thinking as all the children were coming forward how they're so reverent, and they're making sure everything is perfect when they come forward. Their hands are perfectly folded, and their signs of the cross is perfectly counted out. And then as soon as they're finished, everyone else can you stampede through the line to receive communion, because we lose that initial desire, don't we? Where is the reverence that we had when we made our first communion? We cannot expect to fulfill Christ's commandment to love one another if we get tired in loving him. St. Thomas's third point is that love does not allow misfortune to harm it. So go back to marriage. What is the vow that a couple says in marriage? To love one another for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness, and in health. True love doesn't have a breaking point. As scripture says, all things work for good for those who love God. And finally, Christian love leads to real happiness. St. Augustine says that as love grows within you, so beauty grows, for love is the beauty of the soul. And this should make sense to us. Spouses and parents and good friends all find happiness in loving the other. Christ is here commanding us to cultivate that sort of love toward everyone. And admittedly, pretty difficult. But that is why he gave us a community bound in Christian love that we refer to as the church. The church is our guide to Christian love. And the first step that she encourages us to take to love one another is to cultivate a love for God. And that's why, in my opinion, we've seen a real hardship in the church in recent years. There was a great and a holy desire in the mid-1900s with the Second Vatican Council to push the church into the peripheries, to re-emphasize our role of service, our missionary calling. But, in many places, our attempts to reach this goal were made by sacrificing the more foundational and substantial things that we do to show our love for the Lord. I've heard many people, Catholics and non-Catholics alike, claim, for example, that our formal worship, our ecclesiastical structure, the hierarchy, that all these things are distractions or nuisances that block us from the true mission of the church to love one another. But this cannot be further from the truth. It is precisely by going deeper into our love of God, by furthering the efforts that we make to show him love, to show him worship, that we grow in our ability, our capacity to love one another. It's no coincidence that in less developed cultures where there's usually a heightened interest in serving the other and supporting the other, you also find a heightened interest to worship God. And so it's no surprise that in these sort of cultures, they have no issue with a two, three, four-hour mass on a Sunday morning. Where there is greater desire to love God, to give all our time and effort to God, there is always a greater desire to love the other. It's unavoidable. It's the fulfillment of the Christian life and the finding of true happiness. And so in the words of Saint of C.S. Lewis, there is but one good, and that is God. Everything else is good when it looks to him, and bad when it turns from him. Alleluia, Christ is risen.